Welcome to Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. This episode dives deep into a scientific study performed to help us understand the adolescent stage in dogs. As many of you know, I work exclusively with dogs over six months, a lot with adopted dogs, and I specialize in aggression and anxiety rehab. But I also have many clients who have had their dog from puppy and things were going really well and then boom, they hit that six to 12 months age and everything changes. Why? Well, this study that I'm going to talk about, it's it's in the show notes and as well, I talked a little bit about it in the last episode. It's interesting because it helps us understand that this behavior is normal, but perhaps we are perpetuating this behavior. There is a lot of info in this episode and it's a heartfelt one. And as always, it's not intended to criticize people or debunk methods, but to change the way we view working with dogs over the age of six months. Hello, I'm Billy Groom, your host and successful dogologist for three decades. I'm super excited about this episode because we dive into a lot of topics on adolescent dog behavior. The scientist who performed this study I'm going to talk about uh, feels there is a lack of scientific studies done on dogs in that adolescent stage, which probably explains the lack of understanding on their behavior. And I couldn't agree more. There is a reason why my business is so successful. When there is a need, or a problem to be solved, and one has the solution, that is the making of a successful entrepreneur. So this scientific study, of course, follows the rules for scientific studies, but I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to discuss that, uh, but I trust these scientists, and uh, most of my listeners are not scientists, so I'm going to talk about this in normal people language. <laughs> Fortunately, Naomi Harvey, who's one of the scientists in the group performing the study, provided a Coles Notes version, so I'm going to refer to that. The goal of this study was to determine if there is a change in behavior at adolescence, and if so, to what amount and what are the changes. And when I say behavior, I'm talking about obedience. So these dogs went through the guide dog training program and were quite well trained at five months old, and they all readily obeyed. Uh, the sit command for a treat so that they knew to sit for a treat. And in this study, they're about six months, eight months, a year old, typical adolescent age. They conducted the study in a lab style setting and they used the basic exercise of getting a dog to sit for a treat reward to determine the level of obedience in the dogs at different ages. While some dogs refused to sit, they noticed that one of the dogs who was being handled by a professional trainer did sit for a treat of which they thought perhaps this was because the trainer had the skills to effectively achieve the sit. Maybe. Or maybe the dog was the kind of dog that simply was good with doing as told or was good with positive reinforcement training style, excuse me, positive reinforcement style training, which this exercise adhered to. I'll use an example with teens since this stage is often compared to the teen stage. Say you have three kids between 14 and 18 years old and you want to get them to take out the garbage on a rotating basis. And all three of these children would have easily agreed to this a year ago. Now one of them has no problem doing this. And this is like a dog that just wants to please and knows right from wrong and is good with doing what you ask. The second child is willing to do it, but only when you offer an hour extension on her curfew. 
This is like dogs who do well with positive reinforcement training. And many dogs do. And a lot of my clients have used positive reinforcement training successfully to work with their dogs. But then they get thrown for a loop with their next dog. This is like the third child who does not care about getting an extension on the curfew. What he does care about is that he gets the car every Sunday morning. So his parents could refuse him the car on Sunday morning to entice him to take out the garbage, or they could simply force him to take out the garbage. But both of these could increase his unwanted behavior and decrease the bond. They could increase the reward or add in an additional reward. But essentially, he will view this as bribing him. And this often changes his perception of them and can cause them to rook them more. So I'm sort of talking about dogs here, but if, if you increase the bribe, they just, they rook you more. They view you differently. So in this case, the parents incorporate options and additional responsibilities into what's important to him. It shows him that he knows that they know what's important to him and that they're providing proactive direction during this time. For instance, they might provide options such as he can bring back the car by noon or he can pick up his sister at one o'clock and then he can have the car longer. So then what happens is this child initially just comes home at noon and that's fine. And then after a few Sundays, he decides, well, you know what, maybe I will pick up my sister because that'll help the family. And then he decides he'll bring in the empty garbage pails that are the end of the driveway. And then after that, he just decides on his own to take out the garbage. And this approach that they used adheres to the concepts grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy. Like many dogs, they know the expected behavior, but they choose not to do it. Children and dogs don't see the purpose of following house rules unless it makes sense to them. And they know we cannot force it and they rook us if we keep trying to bribe them. We need to work with them in a way that makes sense to them. In the case of the children, both the child that adheres to positive reinforcement training or likes positive reinforcement training, so the one that, that uh, took out the garbage based on getting an hour longer on the curfew, and the child that is better with the techniques grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy. In both cases, the parents are still going to need to be patient and creative, and they'll have relapses, but they know which approach is more effective with each child. Really, when we think about it, taking out the garbage and sitting when told is, is really not what it's all about. It's about opportunities that we use that allow us to teach and instill good habits. How the dog views us is important which may explain why the dog sat for the trainer. Or maybe that dog simply likes positive reinforcement training and it works. Another interesting observation in this uh, study is that one of the dogs who refused to sit for his or her caregiver or handler chose to sit when told by Naomi and that dog, that one of the scientists, and the, the dog and Naomi had never met each other before. So from this, they concluded, or perhaps they suggested, that the bond between the dog and the main caregiver decreases during adolescence. Because what it really indicates is the dog's difference in perception of his main person or caregiver versus that of a new person. And again, I will use children a little bit younger for this example. A child is learning to play the piano, and she has learned uh, a little short tune and when her mom asks her to play it, she's happy to do so. And she feels proud and she gets praised. And this goes on for a while. And then at some point, 
she refuses to play that little tune and she gets a bit belligerent and and like I said, she refuses to play it. Then the new neighbor uh, who's just moved in across the street, well, we'll pretend this is pre-COVID, says that, uh, you know, she comes over for a visit and she looks at the child and she's, she says, you know, I've heard you're learning to play the piano and that you know how to play uh, a little tune and could you play that for me? And of course the child does and the mom is like, what the hell? But the child knows that by playing the tune for the neighbor, the neighbor will be impressed and it's easy to impress her. It's a no-brainer and she gets attention. Perception of her mom is that her mom needs to work with her at, at her own level, maybe provide her with more difficult tunes, expect more from her. And that's the same with the dog's perception of us. That perception of us determines their behavior. And we need to change how we work with them to change that perception. So this child is not being disobedient or showing a lack of bond. The child is maturing and expects her mom to mature with her and encourage this maturity. But she doesn't expect that from the neighbor. Because different dogs in this study responded differently to that exercise of sitting for a treat, the scientists discussed possible reasons for the difference, and this is, this is good. For myself, over the last five or 600 clients I've had, I've also been interested in that, and I've been asking more questions, uh, trying to determine if the history, uh, the upbringing, different factors which might change the outcome or change their behavior or have an effect on the training and, and the program and the process. And so, you know, you're recognizing correlations. So the scientists suggested that if the, the pup was taken from the mom early, this may cause anxiety or a change in bond. And, and I agree with that. That that might be an important factor. There's a lot of important factors. But I'm not sure if those are correlative to this study because the dogs they used were guide dogs. So I'm guessing that they were bred you know, properly, for lack of a better word, and and raised properly. But it's still interesting to to determine what the differences might be. And there's a few explanations for that. Some dogs simply like positive reinforcement training, and they continue to do well with it. And that exercise, as I've said, is grounded in positive reinforcement training. But what about the dogs that positive reinforcement training begins to fall short? They just they just don't like it. It doesn't work on many levels as in their life. And, and, and their people and their caregivers can just, eh, you know, what used to be working isn't working. So what these scientists didn't touch upon as a possible factor to explain the difference was the actual test itself. Animal scientists have performed studies that prove dogs gain cognitive abilities around this age, the beginning of the adolescent stage, and that they can think and process cognitively. By choosing an exercise grounded in positive reinforcement training, perhaps they were perpetuating the outcome. They were expecting a dog to sit for a contrived reward, such as a treat. Often, as with children, this can lead to behaviors which are considered disobedient or rebellious. If the conclusions of this study were simply that dogs who were taught to sit using a treat reward during puppyhood commonly refused to sit for their main caregiver when offered a treat reward, during the early stages of adolescence, then yes, I agree with this test, that that would be a valid result. But to conclude, or a valid conclusion, but to conclude that there is a decrease in obedience and bond at adolescence based on a dog to refusing to sit, I don't think is a valid conclusion. Commonly, trainers are behaviorists when this happens. 
will then search for a higher value reward. And these are still contrived rewards. And what I mean by that, I talked about contrived rewards earlier in this podcast, but they're making up the reward. They're saying you want to you want to sit for the tree. Or they search for acceptable forms of positive punishment and positive correction. So they're persisting with positive reinforcement training and balance training, which are grounded in operant conditioning. And just the actual act of doing that can increase disobedience and it can decrease the bond. And when these methods are ineffective, then sometimes that leads to implementing avoidance, which can increase unwanted behavior because you're not actually addressing the issue. You're just avoiding it. Sometimes it leads to uh, using the e-collar or some other forms of uh, perhaps negative responses. And that gets into the debate on the positive correction and positive punishment. All of those are grounded in operant conditioning. So just by nature, they could be perpetuating the outcome. So like children, uh, you know, if we go back to the one with the musical piece, if the mom forces her to play that piece, her behavior is going to be different than if she's allowed to choose a piece, for example, or perhaps choose a different instrument or, you know, really what we're doing there is, again, instilling good habits. The teen with the garbage, if he were forced to do it, there's a high likelihood he would rebel. So let's say these scientists take those same dogs in this study and they use a test which adheres to the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. How do we do this? Well, cognitive behavioral therapy uses opportunity-driven rewards as opposed to contrived rewards. And I talk about this at the beginning of the episode, as I said earlier, uh, sorry, in the beginning episodes of this podcast. So to do this, it's best to perform the study in more real-life situations than a lab. And I know that a lab allows to monitor the study, you know, apples for apples and decrease variables. But in reality, simply being in a lab has an effect on dogs. Dogs are not a liquid in a Petri dish. So it's irrelevant of where it occurs. There's, there's going to be changes and we need to take into account those variables. And we need to structure the test to decrease the variables that can affect the outcomes, no matter what we do. So whether we do that in a real life situation like a home, we still need to do that. We also need exercises that make sense to the dog in situations that are important to the dog. And we need commands that recognize the cognitive abilities, allow for options, and change perception, which the SIT command does not. This is different than canine enrichment. Think back to the, to the teen uh, with the vehicle on the Sunday morning. If his options were an extended curfew or an addition to his allowance, he probably wouldn't have cared. And that, that would be more like canine enrichment. It has to be something that he cares about which is his Sunday morning vehicle. So this may sound complicated or as though I'm expecting actual training techniques to be applied during a study, but they are simply exercises my clients apply initially when we begin working together. These really should be mainstream, basic exercises. When dogs show a small sign of thinking cognitively, such as not sitting for a treat when they used to sit for a treat, or no longer wanting to go in their crate, or not coming when called when their person is 10 feet from them in the backyard, we need to stop viewing these as decreased obedience, but as a sign to advance to exercises grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy, change the way we work with them. Additionally, when we automatically do this with adopted dogs, 
as soon as they come into foster or into their home, if they're over six months, we can prevent unwanted behavior and increase the bond. This too can easily be a scientific study if they want to do it. So by changing the test to one that harnesses the cognitive side of the brain, which is what is happening when they choose not to sit instead of repressing them, it would be very interesting to see if the outcome is different. And of course, I know the outcome is different uh, for many dogs because my clients perform these exercises every day and I hear the feedback on the changes. And the changes are not necessarily what they called me on initially, but they indicate a willingness to change behavior. They notice that the dog is looking at them differently, not, not looking as in forced to look, but just viewing them differently. Their perception has changed. My, my clients just view the dogs as being more bonded and more obedient. It's small changes in behavior, but they literally see their dog's brain ticking. And that's how we know we're going in the right direction. I understand client feedback is not a scientific study, but at the same time, sheer numbers hold weight. Hundreds of clients tell me that methods suggested to them by certified and successful positive reinforcement trainers increase the unwanted behavior and decrease the bond. Their dog is the same dog living in the same household, and the trainers they hired before me are good trainers. The difference is in the method. So there are many studies we can do to test cognitive abilities and, and, and to harness those cognitive abilities. Canine enrichment and sports such as agility draw upon these abilities. Sometimes simply by adding these activities into the daily routine, unwanted behavior is decreased or eliminated. Sometimes CBD oil is effective because it changes thought patterns. I'd be really interested in tests which study the brain waves or I guess where the brain goes, so to speak. When CBD oil or canine enrichment exercises or agility are applied in comparison to where the brain goes when upper dogology is applied. Upper dogology is an actual formula, whereas, say, something like canine enrichment are exercises in games. Not all dogs need a methodology grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy. There is not one right way to work with a dog. And that would be another interesting set of studies why some dogs prefer positive reinforcement training or balance training or perhaps cbt works for them and that's their preference so by including upward dogology into mainstream dog rearing the process of raising a dog or integrating rescue dogs we simply have more tools in the toolbox i'm glad scientists are interested in studying adolescent dog behavior these studies actually validate upward dogology, and there's dozens, if not hundreds, of these studies that do so. The, the scientists aren't intending to do that. But I read these studies, and I think, why are these scientists doing them? I mean, they're scientists. They're not behaviorists. But I find it hard to believe that for many of them, their goal is not only to help us understand dogs, but to help dogs. So in this particular study, I trust these scientists were not intentionally setting the dogs up by using a, a test grounded in positive reinforcement training to prove that the dogs become disobedient and less bonded during the adolescent stage. And technically, the dog not sitting is a sign of decreased obedience. It, it frustrates people and that's how people view it, but it shouldn't be viewed that way. Having patience is not the answer. It's not a realistic one. By viewing these changes in behavior as disobedient and saying that we need to have patience and expecting this negative behavior to occur, we're not doing the dogs a favor. It often 
leads to dogs revolving around in a system that is failing them, or it can lead to the dogs being euthanized. Rescue organizations may have patience and the desire to figure out how to work with these dogs, but it's not necessary and not fair to dogs who are surrendered during adolescence due to behavioral reasons. We know how to work with these dogs. These changes in behavior are indications we need to implement that formula that effectively harnesses the cognitive ability and in turn decreases unwanted behavior and increases the bond. We need to change our perception that these changes are a sign of disobedience to simply the dogs are advancing. If you've listened to my other episodes, I'm sure you can tell how uh, important this episode is to me. I, it, it reminds me of rescuers, and, and I know a ton of them, especially in other countries, Central and South America, uh, where they, they just have a revolving door of dogs that they're saving. And as much as they're rewarded by that and they, they are saving the dog's lives, at some point it just, it just occurs to them that they, they really need to address the reason for this problem. They want to spread awareness, perhaps, on the need for spaying and neutering or increasing uh, punishment for people who abuse animals and just increase education in general. And I'm the same with upper dogology. Every day, I'm not exaggerating, every day for decades, and in particular since positive reinforcement training and balance training have become so popular, I receive emails from people who are frustrated and at their wits end. As much as what I do is rewarding, and it changes the lives of my clients and changes the lives of their dogs, it is frustrating that this is continuing to occur. Collaboration is mandatory with organizations that are trying to help dogs, whether that's rescue organizations, animal activists, nonprofits, celebrities, authors, animal scientists. We need to work together and open our minds to what is in the best interest of the dogs and the people who are trying to help them. For more information, Please listen to some of the other episodes and visit my website uh, and you can follow Upper Dogology on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and on LinkedIn. I'm Billy Groom. Please contact me with any questions you have. Please share these episodes. Thanks again to Open Strum for the beautiful music and all they do for animals. And most importantly, enjoy your learning journey. Mm-hmm.